Welcome back to South Africa part two. This is part two of the South Africa part of the scramble for Africa. So we're nine episodes into, well, this is the 10th, but nine episodes <laughs> into the scramble. Uh, and we're, um, <laughs> and we're it's getting longer every day <laughs> and it's getting longer every day. But so South Africa, where did we leave off? We left off, um, with the, the Hosa wars were were over. The cattle killing movement has happened. Yeah, um, and we've talked. We ta- we had talked about how the colonies came under the control of the British Empire. Um, but uh, and was there anything else we talked about? We were leaving a lot of threads hanging. Obvi- <clears throat> Sorry, obviously we're we're coming back to the Boer. Yeah, uh, and their treks. And, and what that caused. And once again, we're going back in time a little bit, back to uh, another Bantu group who migrated into South Africa. These are the Zulu. Uh, they're of the Nguni branch, like the Hosa, and they set up a small kingdom. Every time I look at a map, I'm, I'm surprised at how small it is, considering the impact and the influence that the Zulu had. It, it's really quite a small piece of territory. They're on the uh, Indian Ocean coast between the Tugela and Pongola rivers. And their most famous, one of their early and most famous kings was Shaka, often called Shaka Zulu. He was born in 1787. He had a career that was quite spectacular and earned himself some nicknames, one of them being the Napoleon of Africa, which I'll leave that up to your own choice whether you... Contemporary, right? I mean, around the same... I mean, I guess Napoleon's a little bit older, but not that much. Uh, Napoleon was born in 1769, so yeah. Yeah. So Shaka was an illegitimate son of uh, the Zulu king, but he found himself an ally and a mentor in uh, Dingisweo, the chief of the Imthetwa tribe. Uh, Dingisweo lent Shaka a regiment of soldiers so that he could overthrow his half-brother, which he proceeded to do. And that left Shaka in the position of a vassal of the Imthetwa until Dingisweo himself was captured in battle and beheaded by another ruler, Zwide of the Ndwande. Shaka could only get very small groups uh, to join him. He's trying to increase his numbers and build a coalition. And then I guess he decided that since he couldn't get the numbers, he would have to change the quality of his soldiers. And he did that by teaching his followers, teaching the Zulus, that the most effective way of becoming powerful, quickly powerful, was by outright conquering and controlling other tribes. And this became, I guess, the, the, the theme of his rule. And it had an enormous impact on the, the outlook of the Zulus. They became a warrior tribe, a very militaristic outlook, which uh, reminds me somewhat of the Spartans in in ancient Greece. So he taught them, or his approach uh, basically boils down to this, smash your enemies, and then 
incorporate the scattered remnants of their tribes into your own army. And second, he used a mixture of uh, diplomacy and patronage. So while I say it's a militaristic outlook, he was not blind to the advantages of diplomacy. So he brought in friendly chieftains, uh, and he did this by marriage alliances. He didn't defeat them in war. He didn't have to. He, he won them over by subtle ta tactics. And I, maybe he learned to do this from his alliance with the Imtetwa, his former you know, overlords, who were now leaderless. Obviously, he was going to have to have a showdown with Zvide of the Ndwandwe, and that came at the Battle of Gokli Hill. Uh, Shaka's troops had a strong position on the crest of the hill. His enemy Zvide attacked a frontal attack, and it didn't dislodge them. But then Shaka sealed his victory by sending his reserve in a sweep around the hill to attack the rear, the enemy rear. Uh, both sides lost heavily, but Shaka won the battle with his innovation. I, I don't know that encirclement was part of the tactics of those days. And in 1825, he defeated Zwide a second time, even more, uh, even more decisively. So these military victories gave him prestige, but the, the, the style of the victories made them complete. It's hard to know exactly what the warfare of the time looked like. For some reason, I, it, it makes me think of uh, the Iliad. You know, you have uh, lines of men with shields and spears, and, you know, the, the champions step forward and, and challenge somebody to meet them. And then you have throwing of spears, and the, the shields, the hide shields, are not stout enough to catch a spear, but you can deflect one. Yeah, I mean, I've, 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 I've listened to, there's a, there's a podcast um, about history. I, I think the most popular, I mean, obviously besides ours, um, but, <laughs> okay. you know, it, it, I, you know, close second place is this series called Hardcore Siri, Hardcore History. Uh, I can't remember his name, Dan something, but he, uh, he has these, he, he, he's a monologue. Like he, he does stuff that I'm, I'm kind of amazed by. Like he, he'll just talk, like he'll talk for four hours or whatever uh lots of preparation but he um he was talking about how he has some stuff on ancient history and he was talking about how no one really knows what happened when these shield walls kind of encountered each other there's no there's no completely clear description anywhere of how it acted like did people step forward did they then start one-on-one -on -one fights did they actually literally press their shields against each other or what so it's funny that after all this history of warfare like today we're still not entirely sure what actually happened well there's been a lot written about <clears throat> shaka's military and and social reforms which and we'll come to the military in, in just a second uh first i i just wanted to get this digression out of the way uh he allowed uh Europeans to enter his territory on rare occasions. So I'm not sure how often or, or under what conditions. Apparently, uh, Shaka was ill uh, after an assassination attempt that had come close. Maybe he was wounded. And a European uh, doctor named Henry Francis Finn provided medical treatment. 
and Shaka was grateful enough to allow some Europeans to uh, enter his kingdom. So he got a look at several demonstrations of European technology, of European knowledge, and decided that the Zulu way was superior to, the, to that of the foreigners anyway. So his, his uh, innovations, because there aren't many historians of the time, of the 19th century, who, who doubt or even deny that he was an innovator. There, there's nobody who's going to claim that he was influenced by Europeans and that's how he learned, you know, his new tricks. M most historians give him full credit for what he did. In that sense, he is like Napoleon. You know, the ideas might have been lying around, but he's the one who put them all together. So the first thing he did was change the weaponry of his tribesmen. Uh, previous to his rule, actually at the beginning of his rule, the main weapon was the Asagai. It's a long throwing spear. So that's why I think I think that the battle sometimes began with individual challenges and and, and quite often the two lines of, of warriors would remain at a certain distance and, and throw spears at each other. Shaka introduced a new weapon. He didn't get rid of the Asagai, but he added a new shorter spear called the Iklwa. One of my university professors said that it was onomatopoeic. The Iklwa is a stabbing spear. It's a two-foot uh, shaft with a broader spearhead, more, more like a sword. And Iklwa refers to the sound it makes when you stab an enemy with it and then pull Ooh. it out. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, it's a pretty terrifying advantage against an opponent who isn't really keen on hand-to-hand -hand conflict and is throwing his spear. And once you get at close range, a long spear is actually a disadvantage. So they didn't, you know, they didn't get rid of their assegais, but they would throw them as they approached to close contact, and that's when they would use the ikwa in hand-to-hand -hand combat. He also issued them with a larger, heavier shield. So now they begin to resemble uh, Romans with heavier shields, with a throwing weapon, but then also a close-range weapon, and they weren't afraid to get close. So the warriors were taught to use the left side of their shield to hook their enemy's shield and push or, 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 or nudge it to the right and expose the enemy's ribs for uh, what was expected to be a fatal stab with their shorter weapon, the Iklwa. I guess you're going to get to this, but if you're if you're going from a society or a, a method of fighting that's based on throwing your spear and not getting up close to fighting up close with stabbing weapons, you have to do constant training, and and so the training and the discipline and the conditioning all becomes really important it certainly did <clears throat> so the uh, the shields were considered so important that in shaka's time they were supplied by the king and they remained his property so it's i'm just loaning you <laughs> it's like the university computer yeah. <laughs> yeah and he had different colored shields to distinguish the different regiments so that's going to give you some <clears throat> uh, battlefield information you can you, you know see where your troops are but it's also going to create a little bit of uh, unit pride and maybe some competition 
between the regiments to outdo one another. Shaka prized mobility, and you're talking about, you know, the physical demands. They trained by going on long route marches, forced marches. Apparently, they discarded sandals uh, to toughen their feet. Uh, and anybody who objected to going without sandals was simply killed. So discipline was uh, rather simple and abrupt. Apparently, some of these long marches covered more than 80 kilometers in a day. That's 50 miles. That's almost two marathons. And it wasn't walking. It was a fast trot. Wow. And this is South Africa, so the terrain is uh, rocky and uh, hot. Yeah. So they drilled constantly, long marches, but also uh, practicing the encirclement tactics. Now, even if this distance is an exaggeration, the point is that the Zulus moved further and faster than their enemies, and that became a major advantage. It, you know, that in that sense, he is very much like Napoleon. Yeah, he's already there. Yeah, training started early. Uh, Shaka emphasized the youth, boys and girls aged six and over were already, you know, drafted into Shaka's force as apprentice warriors. They were called Udibi. And they served as uh, rations carriers, uh, supply carry. They, they would carry cooking pots and sleeping mats and extra weapons. And this role they would keep until they joined the main ranks, at least, you know, the boys. It, it sound, this is the only claim that sounds debatable to me because I, I find it hard to believe that, you know, eight-year-olds carrying, you know, cooking pots and extra weapons are able to keep up with these long marches. But uh, training the youth early was another advantage that the Zulu had. Uh, this, this part is traditional. Bantu culture, uh, age groupings were very common. Uh, I, I don't want to call them Boy Scouts, but you get the idea, the, the, the the kids of the same age would be grouped together and given tasks. And then they would be promoted at the next age grade to a, a newer, more important task. All of this uh, would include things like guarding camps, uh, cattle herding, and also participating in certain ceremonies and, and rituals. And then Shaka added to the age group organization, he added regiments. The regiments would be uh, quartered together. He gave them special military uh, crawls. This is the the K-R-A-A-L spelling, but it seems to be very close to corral. Uh, each regiment had their own distinctive names, their own insignia, their colored shields. This, again, is just, I think, incorporating existing cultural elements, but maybe Shaka gave them more emphasis. And he was a tactical innovator as well. So the, the famous bullhorn formation seems to have come from him. So there's three parts to this. The main force is called the chest. And their job is to close with the enemy and pin them in position. They're supposed to throw their long spears and then close in with their short stabbing spears and lock on to the enemy. And the men in the chest were uh, senior veterans, experienced fighters. 
So while the enemy is being pinned down by the chest, the horns on either side would flank them and then encircle them and then destroy the force that was trapped between them. So the warriors in the horns were young, uh, junior warriors, also faster so that they could cover the ground quickly and get into position. And then behind both those groups were the loins, the reserve. So they were very often hidden. They'd be sitting down behind the men of the chest so you couldn't see them. And apparently Shaka also sat them with their backs to the battle so that they wouldn't see what was going on. They wouldn't see any, you know, sight that would make them lose confidence. And then <clears throat> if the enemy threatened to break out of the encirclement, that's when the reserve would be committed to, to plug the gap and to keep them in and so that they could be eliminated. And some of that is also very Napoleonic, right? Yeah, I was just going to say it's very like 19th, uh, early 19th century standards or late 18th. But did Frederick the Great do this kind of stuff too? Or is that? No, That's Frederick's tactics were very linear. Static, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, he does want to overlap you on one side so that he can uh, flank you. But total encirclement, that's like a dream for most generals. Right. <laughs> and, and it's what Shaka was after in every fight. Uh, Zulu discipline was famous. He let his warriors know what would happen if their courage failed them in battle or if their regiment was defeated. It, it, it was very brutal, and it applied not only to them, but to their families. So if a man showed the slightest hesitation about you know coming to close quarters with the enemy, he was executed as soon as the fight was over. And if a regiment had, you know, the bad luck to be defeated, whether it was their own fault or not, when they came back to headquarters, they would find that a good proportion of their wives and children had been beaten to death on Shaka's orders and that he was waiting for them and his vengeance would be completed by basically beating their brains out. Uh, that's why some Zulu armies occasionally were annihilated but they were rarely defeated and they never ran away another huge advantage <laughs> i hmm. <laughs> well, i'm skeptical <laughs> is this uh against his uh, bantu enemies right so there are arguments about whether he was a true innovator or a borrower. And I, I, I just don't see the difference. You know, in the case of Napoleon, there were certain innovations, you know, that were in place before he came to be a general and, and before he came to power. But he recognized them, their value, and took full advantage. There are others who say that Shaka's uh, line was relatively short-lived and that he gets too much attention compared to other longer established uh, lines and, and rulers in the region. One historian called uh, his line a royal house of doubtful pedigree. Does that oh, actually... Oh, right. <laughs> Uh, and uh, who well, was some this? of these are, are <laughs> other African tribes, right? Who dominated right. the area the area longer, right? Okay, but you know they're less well known, 
a little bit of jealousy. We have some sources by uh, European adventurers, merchants, uh, who met Shaka towards the end of his reign. So one of them, Nathaniel Isaacs, published a book, Travels and Adventures in Eastern Africa, in 1836. And he depicted Shaka as a pathological monster, a degenerate. And those ideas, you know, <laughs> persisted a long time. You might, you might say they're still around. So this would be the emphasis on his cruelty and, and savage discipline. And Isaacs is uh, helped in this by uh, Finn, the, the, the guy who, the doctor who cured him of his wounds. Uh, Finn's diary, uh, edited in 1950, and, and again, there's the emphasis on the cruelty and, and the savage punishments. There's also an account from 1955, uh, a novel called Shaka Zulu by E.A. Ritter. And it's more of a, you know, a, a romance, uh, been described as a pot boiler, <laughs> uh, which was re-edited to make it look more like a history. One of the more famous ones is Donald Morris's The Washing of the Spears, and Morris notes that, you know, the sources for this era are not the best. So much of what we know about Shaka is uh, somewhat unreliable. I think that's fair. Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> and and inter- and not disinterested, right? So that's that's always the thing is like, and I'll I'll get into. I mean, I'm I'm soon gonna tell you what those interests were you can probably imagine but i'll but um yeah i'll let let you i'll let you finish (laughs) (laughs) uh shaka's legacy created he created a zulu empire uh this increase in military efficiency allowed the zulus to conquer to intimidate and more and more clans were incorporated into the empire uh also a number of other tribes moved away from them. Understandably, they weren't keen to to fight the Zulus. So this moving away became a a ripple effect, and it's known as the Infikane. There are a couple of different versions of what Infikane means, but one of them is the scattering. So a number of, of smaller tribes moved away from the Zulus into other areas, including into... Uh, Hosa territory, which added to the, the pressure on them. At, at the time of his death, Shaka ruled over a quarter of a million people and could muster more than 50,000 warriors. Uh, quite a few people died during his reign, and it wasn't all you know uh, combat deaths either, because when you're moving large numbers of people and their cattle, you know, you can have uh, famine and disease and so on. I I don't know how many people died. We're, it's, it's only guessing in any case. Uh, the Enfikane produced uh, other notable figures. Mzilikazi of the Humalo was one of Shaka's generals, but I guess he had a contract dispute, so he fled. And with his followers, he in turn conquered himself an empire in Zimbabwe. And he also clashed with Europeans like the Boers. The people that followed Mzilikazi 
the Ama Ndebele or the Matabele. Uh, they were in the south of Zimbabwe and they pushed another group, the Amashona, into the north and that caused a tribal conflict that, well, it went on into the 20th century and affected the independence. Uh, well, what happened after independence in Zimbabwe? I don't know if we're ever going to get that far, but some people will know about it already. So the 20th century uh, interpretation or, or analysis of the Mfikane basically blames Shaka's aggressive expansion for causing a brutal chain reaction across Southern Africa. Uh, so dispossessed, <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> dispossessed tribe after dispossessed tribe turned on their neighbors and you get this cycle of uh, flight and fight and conquest. Uh, there are a few who say this theory should be treated with caution because it doesn't contempt or dismissal (laughs) yeah they they kind of neglect the impact of other uh conquerors uh notably europeans but yeah so basically if you blame shaka for the death toll in south africa you are exonerating uh some people we've already mentioned the british the boers it's also a very convenient uh, argument or portrayal to justify apartheid. Is that where yeah. you were, were going to go? That's where I was going to go. I mean, and so it's it's interesting too because even even the way they talk about the Bantu migrations, it has this ring of like you see, uh, there were different migrations. You see, the Bantus came, and then the white people came, and uh, everybody comes and conquers things, and so we're not doing anything differently than what has been done for thousands of years or something. Actually, and it's they're, they're yeah. arguing that they're doing it more humanely. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, you know, there it's funny because the other, like, it clashes with the other racist justification for stealing the continent, which is that these are people without history um, mm, and right. so on. So um, here's one from Sir Samuel Baker. You talked about him as one of the explorers writing about um, Africa uh, in the Times, quoted the times a lot it's a major source the times of london um and sir samuel baker said central africa is without a history in that savage country we find no vestiges of the past no ancient architecture neither sculpture nor even one chiseled stone to prove that the n-word savage of this day is inferior to a remote ancestor we find primeval races existing upon primitive rock formation um so uh, here he's here. They're saying, you know, there's just a natural state of humanity, no history. And then on the other hand, you know, there's this theory blaming Shaka Zulu for everything that happened. Uh, the scramble for Africa. Um, here's another. Here's another quote from the same piece uh, by Baker. He says, "The history of our own country will prove that, however good our intentions may have been." The musket and bayonet have been the precursor of permanent trade in savage countries. Savage countries. Um, Livingstone, one of our other, uh, you know, humane explorers, the good explorer, he said, um, "We came as members of a superior race." Whatever. Um, Baker said, "What right have we in Natal or any other colony except the right of a superior force?" Um, and so. 
you know, we're, we're, because we're talking about South Africa, we have, um, we have an interesting, like, we have a chance to, to really solidify our understanding of how racism came to, to be, because it's like, um, Magubane's book, the title of the book that I'm using, The Making of a Racist State, British Imperialism in the Union of South Africa, 1875 to 1910. It's like, that's what, you know, that's one of the themes for me of this whole story of South Africa is like how they made, how they conceived and created in the 19th century when they're, when racism was their official ideology, how they got to make a state in Africa out of that ideology and uh and south africa was it um and there's like there's a a whole other there's a set of themes that i'm gonna keep kind of interjecting um and one of them is the the um the whole like what do you do with the natives (laughs) you know that that issue was like the one of the driving factors for making a racist state in the first place so anthony trollope um, who you'll hear about. It's interesting because Anthony Trollope, I think I've, we've mentioned him on this podcast before. He comes up in like books about writing, <laughs> writing habits, because he famously uh, got up at 6 a.m. and wrote two hours every single day without fail. Mm. Um, and that's like, you know, that's the habit that writers everywhere aspire to. Like if you can find two hours a day, you can you can write as much as you could ever want. And he's also said things like, you know, he wrote one book a year and he said, you know, it's better to just write one book a year and not saturate the market and give somebody else a chance <laughs> to, you know, two hours a day one. And then he would go and work as a, as a mail clerk. Um, but he, so he was a racist writer um, and he would, he went to South Africa in 1878. I didn't know that. Yeah. And he compared South Africa to Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And he said, you know, in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, native races have withered by commune with us as the weaker weedy grasses of nature's first planting wither and die wherever come the hardier plants. (laughs) So you can tell that as a as a writer, as a prolific writer, you can see he worked on that sentence. Um, It has often been that we have struggled our very best to make our landing on a shore an unmixed blessing to those to whom we have come. (laughs) But uh, he doesn't know anything about gardening, does he? (laughs) It is impossible to think of such prosperity without a dash of suffering, without a pang of remorse. Um, Okay. But look, look at it this way. In South Africa, in one town of 18,000 inhabitants, 10,000 of them are now receiving 10 shillings a week each man in addition to their diet hence at any rate we have not come as a blighting poison to the races whom we have found in this country of our adoption i think this ought to endear south africa to us <laughs> so he comes and he he's he's here to do an investigation there was another guy who came which i'll tell you about as well but in his investigation he comes in 1878 and he concludes um, he makes the following recommendations, um, and he has considerable influence, by the way. Um, he says, you know, we should confine Africans to reservations. We should assert British supremacy over the Boers, and we should create a self-government of South Africa, um, a federation on the Canada model, which the Canada model had just been, right, 10, ten years before is the Dominion, 11 years, based on servile African labor. Um, and... You know the the whole the whole issue of like 
this is this is too bad that the native uh africans are not just you know getting smallpox or whatever and having these plagues that happened in in the americas um it's interesting because wilmot another writer wilmot who you'll hear more about in 1895 writes had the european colonists not been fettered but allowed the free development of their energies free commerce and free cultivation it is lamentable that the process of the extermination of the black man may have been more rapid. So he's kind of, if I understand that correctly, that's a bit, it's one of these circuitous sentences, but I think he's saying it's too bad that there are not, that we didn't exterminate um, Africans, but I don't know. Wow. (laughs) Um, but I guess we didn't finish with Shaka. <laughs> well, no, but hence the, the portrayal of Shaka as a savage so that we can use the argument, well, yeah. if we had left them to their own devices, right? you know, they would have slaughtered each other. So right. our coming in, we can Un- improve the place. We've at least tried to make it an unmixed blessing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, Shaka had a... Uh, a troubled life in one sense. His uh, half-brothers uh, kept trying to murder him. These are Dingani and Mlangana. Uh, they tried to murder him at least twice. And uh, yeah, I'm sure he had enough enemies uh, among his own people. His mother, Nandi, died in October of 1827. And his reaction was uh, a little over the top. He had people killed in his... Uh, you know, his reaction to his mother's death was that everybody should suffer as I have. And I've seen this behavior in other places and other cases. You know, there might be some cultural background for it, but even by those standards, Shaka was a little over the top and Europeans fix on this, you know, erratic behavior and he's a madman. Uh, according to Morris, uh, Shaka ordered that no crops should be planted in the following year, which would be dedicated to mourning. Uh, no milk was to be used. And, and this is the basis of the Zulu diet at the time. Uh, he's supposed to have said that any woman who became pregnant was to be killed along with her husband. And some thousands of people who were deemed insufficiently grief-stricken were executed. And, you know, there's even a legend that uh, cows were slaughtered as well so that their calves would know what losing a mother felt like. I don't know how much of this is true and how much is just exaggeration. Uh, The point is that his reaction was a little too much and his brothers were able to gather enough followers to assassinate him in 1828. So his half-brother Dingane took over promptly purged the pro-Shaka elements of the tribe, and then he bought the loyalty of the regiments by allowing them to marry and set up homesteads, things that were forbidden in Shaka's time. And he also gave them gifts of cattle. But he continued the use of fear as a motivator, just as Shaka had. Dengani was even more despotic, though. Uh, His subjects had to <clears throat> apply godlike attributes to him. Uh, for instance, no one was allowed to admit that his reign might have had a beginning. 
He, he was considered immortal, <clears throat> one who had been neither born nor would ever die. So if you raise the subject of when did his reign start, his subjects would reply hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And <clears throat> at morning and evening meals, uh, they rose and raised their hands and exclaimed, Thou that art greater than the heavens. So Dingane's uh, ministers, his concubines, his servants, basically anyone around him, got into the habit of not thinking, acting, or speaking at all, except at his suggestion or command. His 500 or so concubines were uh, closely guarded. Uh, he referred to them as his sisters or his children, and he had different ranks of concubines, but they were only allowed to leave the royal enclosure with his permission. And when they did, they were not allowed to cast their eye on any man or boy. Uh, some of them ran away when they got the opportunity. Uh, they were usually caught and executed. He had Shaka's despotism. He did not have Shaka's uh, leadership skills or military skills. Uh, rebel chiefs were able to break away from his rule, and there was a pretty steady ex exodus of chiefs and generals who fell out of favor, fleeing the country. In 1837, Dingani met with uh, some of the Boer trekkers. So these are Dutch uh, colonists in South Africa who are leaving the British areas and trekking or, or traveling into new areas. Uh, the leader of this group was Piet Retief. So they, I, I don't know the exact incident, but apparently they recovered some stolen cattle and gave it back to Dingane. And in return for that, Dingane signed a deed, uh, a cession of lands to them. The deed was in English. So again, we have to question, did, did he know what he was signing? And why was it in English? Uh, what were the terms? Well, it, it didn't really matter because in February of 1838, after two days of feasting, uh, Dengane had Retief and his party killed. They'd been told to leave their firearms outside the royal kraal, and in the middle of the feast, Dengane leapt to his feet and shouted, kill the wizards. So Retief and his immediate group were killed, and then Dengane's regiments went and killed the rest of the trek party, about 500 Boers with their native servants, uh, women and children. The Boers call it the Weenan Massacre. So after this move, Dingani then sent his army against another group of Boer trekkers, this one led by Andres Pretorius. You might recognize the last name. Uh, Pretorius had 464 men and a Zulu army of 10,000-plus attacked their camp. This is the Battle of Blood River, and I believe the Boers basically created a, a, a lager with their, uh, with their wagons, so like a, like a fortified camp. Uh, an estimated 3,000 Zulus were killed, and the Boers lost none, uh, three slightly wounded, so... I guess the Zulus did not close, you know, for hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat. So this got Dingane, uh, well, upset, obviously, but now worried 
because a defeat like this is going to damage his reputation. It's going to be a threat to his prestige, and it might encourage people to start rising against him. So in his damage control mode, Dingane started eliminating anyone that he thought was a possible threat. Makes you think of some Roman emperors that we've seen. Uh, one of his half-brothers, Mpande, was considered very weak, and he was allowed to live. Other half-brothers were eliminated. Uh, that's the ones left over from the assassination of Shaka in 1828. So this Impande apparently showed no interest in Zulu power politics. But by 1839, he started to worry that if he, you know, came in front of Dingane, that he would be killed. So he, he fled and he led thousands of Zulus into Natal. Uh, this is closer to the coast and there were Boers there who had set up a, a, a Boer Republic. So Andres Pretorius and Gert Rudolph, another Boer leader, decided to support Mpande. They, I guess they figured if they could overthrow Dingane, they could get more concessions from his successor. So in 1840, Mpande's army, uh, backed by the Boers, defeated Dingane at the Battle of Makongo, and Mpande backed by Pretorius, was proclaimed king. Uh, Dingani escaped this battle, executed his own general first, but then uh, fled, but he was murdered, and that left Mpande unopposed. Mpande claimed that he'd been forced to become king against his own wishes. Reminds me a little bit of the emperor Claudius taking over for Caligula. Mm-hmm. So, in return for their help, the Boers immediately laid claim to a large stretch of territory, uh, and Impante ceded it to them. And there was one uh, group of people who were not happy with this decision. <laughs> well, these land sessions uh, to the Boers are going to become an issue <laughs> during the scramble for Africa. They're going to be an issue for the half a century. Yeah, yeah. No, the British called this a violation of their treaty with the Zulus. Uh, at this point, it's particularly the Republic of Natal that annoys them because this would give the Boers a coastline. This would give them a potential harbor, which they could use to bring in, uh, you know, more Europeans, but also to possibly uh, ally with external forces. And the British do not want this at all. Uh, in 1843, Mpande ordered the death of his brother, who was said to be plotting to kill him. Uh, he also had the brother's wives and children killed. So quite ruthless, even though he didn't want to be king. Mpande adopted an expansionist policy uh, back to Shaka's policy, and or maybe he just wanted to keep his army busy rather than plotting against him. So this led to the invasion of Swaziland in 1852. They were uh, vassals, but basically independent. So that had to go... Uh, the invasion was a success, and Impande's eldest son, uh, Keshweo, proved his capacities as a leader. But the British didn't want the Zulus in Swaziland, so they applied pressure, and uh, Keshweo was wise enough to withdraw. Impande was fairly cagey. He didn't declare one of his son's official successor. Maybe it was his experience of Zulu history that often 
immediately precedes your assassination. So he he wouldn't appoint one of his sons, you know, heir to the throne. He did have a favorite, Mbuyazi, uh, and Quechueo was not happy with the favor shown to his half-brother. So both of them formed factions of their own, started recruiting uh, allies and followers. Quechueo didn't wait for Mpande to die. In 1856, he invaded Mbuyazi's lands and crushed him and his followers uh, in battle, massacred the survivors, including five of his brothers. So Mpande's still alive, but Quechueo is de facto ruler of the Zulus, uh, keeping a sharp eye on his father's new wives and their children for potential rivals. In fact, he ordered the death of Mpande's favorite wife, uh, Nomanchali, and her children in 1861. They were uh, hacked to death, apparently. Two of the sons uh, escaped, but the youngest was killed in front of Mpande, which, you know, leads to questions about Mpande. Was he a simpleton? Was he, you know, the fool of the family? Again, the the comparisons to Roman Emperor Claudius are are, are there, or or was he? a savvy survivor in the Machiavellian world of Zulu politics? I don't know the answer. Possibly both. Uh, Impande died in 1872. Cachuelo became king and became a, a, a legendary figure already. The, the stories of his size, apparently he was something between 6'6 six, six and 6'8 six, tall and weighed close to 350 pounds. Big big man. Uh, he also established a new capital. This is traditional. Each king, you know, moves his royal kraal to a new place. And he called his Ulundi, the, the high place. Ulundi is going to become famous a little later on. So while Keshweo becomes king of the Zulus, there's a new British high commissioner for South Africa. Uh, you're going to love him. So oh, his, I know all about him. <laughs> oh, you, <laughs> you've met him before, have you? Mm-hmm. Uh, Sir Henry Bartle Edward Frere. Uh, he was governor of Bombay in the 60s and became high commissioner for Southern Africa. Now, the secretary for the colonies was Lord Carnarvon, and he wanted a confederation in South Africa. So something like, you know, the Canadian result, they were trying to force this. So we're going to unite the states of Southern Africa into a British confederation. It, it seems like an easy way to unite the region and prevent the remaining African states from uniting against British rule. So we don't want to face, you know, a coalition of, Boers and Zulus and, you know, whoever else. So Carnarvon picked Frere. Mm-hmm. And you said you know about him? Oh, yeah. Um, there's a lot about him and Magupane <laughs> and Carnarvon, <laughs> too. see why, yeah. Um, and, and Pakenham. Um, and, you know, I, I, I keep going back to Pakenham because it's the, the, the um, 
kind of like the only single volume uh, history of the Scramble for Africa, and it's in chronological order, which kind of appeals to me. It's from 1991, um, and even Magubane actually cites it quite a bit. So he was writing this before apartheid had ended, eh? Um, and I was trying to figure out there's something. I don't, I don't, uh, I guess I'll just be frank. There was something that really irritated me about Packingham and his, his attitude. And I just got the sense that he was, you know, ultimately like he's a historian, he's committed to history, but he's, uh, he's got an imperialist take on things. Like that's, that's how he sees the world. And so I just yesterday for the first time I looked him up and, and on Wikipedia, it says Thomas Francis Dermot Packenham, eighth Earl of Longford. <laughs> so he's, he's like, he's an Earl. <laughs> he's the Earl of Longford. So, um, anyway, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's he a made... conservative family. It's a conservative <laughs> family. Another Longford, uh, female was a biographer of the Duke of Wellington. Uh, huh. <laughs> So anyway, uh, now that, with that in mind, like keep that in mind when I'm quoting for, from Packingham, keep his biases in mind and mine, I suppose, too. But um, Frere uh, was regarded by Carnarvon as the best statesman to put into effect uh, his scheme of federation. This is a quote from Packingham. Um, and, as, and Carnarvon himself was responsible for uniting the Canadian provinces into a dominion. So this is the seed of the idea of making it, doing this to South Africa was actually the Canada example. And there's more than one <laughs> dishonorable example of South Africa borrowing from Canada, uh, mm-hmm. including the past system. But let's, we'll, let's save that for the right time. Um, Packingham says, no one needed to remind Frere about the need to treat natives fairly. And I don't know what Packingham means by fairly exactly. He had lived through the horrors of the Indian mutiny and reprisals after it. Um, okay, interesting summary. But that's um, episode 20 A and B in case uh, listeners want to catch up on that. A new India was being created in Africa. A new age of empire building was dawning. So that's the... Uh, that's the attitude they had when they were sending Frere to to make this happen. Yeah, the, there was an earlier plan to unite all the colonies in, in South Africa that the British government had rejected in 1858, saying it wasn't viable. The canal, right? I mean, it probably all has to do with the, the Suez Canal. Like, that makes all kinds of things possible that... Ah, yeah, maybe. Well, I, I think you're right about the Canadian connection, though. It looks like, yeah. oh, we'll just do like we did in Canada. Right. Yeah, making it the making it happen in Canada, and the, and you know the civil the U.S. Civil War. There's so many things that changed so fast <clears throat> between the end of the 1850s and and the 1870s. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, if Lord Carnarvon thought he had picked the right guy in Frere, uh, he was wrong. Frere immediately immediately got to South Africa and alienated everybody. (laughs) He he, he just came and said, right, we're going to have a federation and unite everyone. And everyone said, that's a horrible idea. Uh, The the white South Africans, they didn't like Frere's manner. He was uh, high-handed. They also didn't like that London is imposing this without having consulted them at all beforehand. 
Also, they wondered if London knew anything about, you know, the local conditions, local politics. Sorry. Uh, The Cape Prime Minister, a fellow named John Molteno, said that Confederation was ill-suited to and badly timed for Southern Africa. Their main objection was that the Cape Colony, which is British-dominated, was relatively liberal. That's a really interesting (laughs) description, but, you know, relatively liberal. They did not want to unite with the Boers because the Boers, they called them illiberal, not liberal at all. Uh, They also raised the possibility that union with the Boers would endanger the rights and franchise of black citizens of the Cape Colony. So yes, part of this is the you know the the British colonists patting themselves on the back, we're like we're so much nicer to the natives. But this is a real thing that they could see how the Boers had treated the natives, and it was too 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 much for them. Yeah, there, yeah, exactly. There's there's these different polls about what to do about the so-called native question and the 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 question of the vote was really you know one of the vote the vote and and labor are the two uh questions it, it, yeah it's slavery yeah and so these are the two um there are different all these different ways of trying to handle them in the different colonies and uh and they don't agree right meanwhile the Dutch South Africans, or if you want to call them Afrikaners, uh, they were angry about the recent annexation of the Transvaal, and they didn't support Confederation either. They don't want to be under British rule, period. Uh, That's the Trekkers in any case. Meanwhile, you have, you know, the independent African states like uh, the Zulus, like Swaziland, and they're going to be suspicious of, you know, this British expansion, and why would they give up their independence you know, what do they gain from it? I think they could see not much. Uh, Frere got an opportunity, though. There was a, a major drought from 1875 to 1877, and it led to a tribal conflict, fairly minor uh, tribal conflict, between the Mfengu and Kaleka tribes. So the Cape Colony said, okay, this is just a local skirmish. It's not a big deal. But Frere decided to immediately travel to the frontier and declared war on the uh, Kaleka. Figuring that, you know, I can annex their land for my confederation. Apparently, uh, Carnarvon had told Frere, or or maybe they shared the same opinion, the continued existence of independent African states poses an ever-present threat of a general and simultaneous rising of kafirdom against white civilization. Uh, Kafir, their derogatory term for any non-white, particularly the Africans. So, yeah, basically they're afraid that all the Africans will unite and go to war together. Highly unlikely, but that doesn't mean they didn't worry about it. So in 1878, uh, he did this. He also subjugated the Hossa in Transke and annexed them. 
Frere appealed to the colonial office and received the authority to overthrow the elected government of the Cape Colony because they were obstructing his plans. So I know you have been elected. I know you have a constitution, but <laughs> damn it all, you're annoying. <laughs> so he got permission to change the government. So he uh, got one of his political allies, a fellow named John Gordon Sprigg, to form a puppet ministry. And that solved his constitutional problems. And the Cape is the biggest colony, right? Yes. I think, yeah. Um, yes. Biggest, and in, in character, it's the most uh, British. There are, right. there are still some Dutch there, but they've accepted British rule. Right. Now, things changed back in uh, London. Lord Carnarvon, Frere's patron, resigned in 1878. And his successor, Sir Michael Hicks Beach, didn't want a war in South Africa. So Frere knew about this, and he used the delay in, in the travel time for mail between London and Cape Town. And he timed his letters so that he could avoid whatever the new colonial secretary sent him. And then he sent Quechueo of the Zulus an ultimatum. This is December 1878. And the ultimatum was just impossible. Quechueo cannot accept this. So basically he's forcing the Zulu into a war. He's, he's declaring war on the Zulu, who he considered a bunch of savages armed with sticks. Yeah, so <laughs> Packingham has some details on this uh, in uh, the book Scramble for Africa, The White Man's Conquest of the Dark Continent from 1876 to 1912. Um, so I've got... <laughs> so the story is actually pretty interesting because Frere sent uh, someone named Shepstone. I'm trying to right. find out who Shepstone was, but Shepstone uh, I think was someone from there. Uh, some kind of colonial official who Quechuayo had referred to as the father of whiteness. <laughs> <laughs> and they had known each other for 20 years. Um, and Shepstone um, had gone in 1877, he had gone to the border between Transvaal and Zululand at Blood River and you know, given them their first ultimatum about this strip of territory um, on the northwestern boundary of Zululand. The Boers claimed it, um, and they said they could prove it. Shepstone didn't believe that they could prove it. <laughs> so it was just settler encroachment on Zulu lands. Um, uh, Mpande uh, had offered this same strip to the Natal colony um, to to provide a buffer zone. Mm -hmm. So Shepstone went to Quechuayo and said, no, you have to acknowledge the Boer rights. Um, and Quechuayo said, you, you've betrayed me. You're, a, you're in P Packenham's words, you're a cheat and a fraud. Shepstone was left gasping on the riverbank. <laughs> so he is really angry. Like, how dare you uh, be so ungrateful to me after all I've done for you kind of thing. Um, and sends back to, Frere and says it's time to oust Quechuayo. 
Um, he says, and this is a quote from Shepstone. He says, Quechuayo is the secret hope of every independent chief hundreds of miles from him who feels that the desire that his color shall prevail. The sooner the root of the evil, which I consider to be the Zulu power and military organization, is dealt with, the easier our task will be. So he starts um, orchestrating, uh, according to Packenham, a, a press campaign with garbled <laughs> reports from disgruntled border farmers, traders in whiskey and guns, and most violent um, Protestant missionaries who are resentful because they're not able, they're, they've been very unsuccessful in <laughs> converting uh, people. Um, so these tales against Quechuayo confirmed by Shepstone and the idea of ideological threat from the Zulus did not strike Frere as absurd in the Cape rebellion had spread like a bushfire from tribe to tribe, just as it had spread in India during the mutiny. Of course, Shepstone must be right. Quechuayo was a bloodthirsty tyrant and would have to go. Uh, Britain must control all South Africa from sea to sea. But Quechuayo's diplomacy for all that was actually pretty clever. Um, he sends messages to the bishop and the governor. The governor, Bulwer, the governor of Natal, who's interested in the land, remember, uh, he appoints a commission of inquiry to, um, to arbitrate on whose land it is. So they send the following commissioners. Um, Shep, uh, his brother? No. He sends, yeah, he sends three commissioners. John Shepstone, so his brother, Shepstone's brother, a Colonel Durnford, and a lawyer called Galway. They go camping, they take evidence from Zulu warriors and Transvaalers. And at the end, all the evidence confirms the Zulu title. And the Commission of Inquiry finds in favor of Quechuayo. So now... Shepstone is even more angry, and Frere, to Frere, it was a death blow to his grand design, um, and what a duffer he had been to listen to Shepstone. Um, <laughs> all over South Africa, people would be talking of Downing Street and the Negro Files. That's a word they used uh, back then, so for you can imagine the even more racist translation. Um, uh, so he sails, Frere sails back to the Cape begins to drop hints uh, towards war. Um, <laughs> he, he writes to the editors, we have been all our lifetime subject to bond bondage, our colonists may well say, by reason of this black shadow, the Zulus, across the Tugela. Such a nation must of necessity form a constant menace to the peaceable European community beyond their borders. <laughs> Civilization <laughs> cannot coexist with such a condition of things um, all upon its outskirts. So here's the here's the ultimatum that he does give to Quechuayo, which he does not tell London what the no. terms are. He says, uh, the king has to accept a British resident, basically making the Zululander protectorate. He must abolish the military system, he, i.e. destroy the foundation of his own state. Right. And he has 30 days to do it. <laughs> so he says, there was no fear of the king complying. Frere meant the ultimatum to make war certain. Now was the time. So they were celebrating the, uh, they were, Quechuayo was actually celebrating the um, outcome of the, of the, uh, the arbitration when, uh, <laughs> when he received the news of the ultimatum. 
Um, so let me just say this about Durnford, because Durnford was on the commission that found in favor of Quechuayo, right? Right. But then, um, when the war starts, he, he says, um, well, I got to join and command the the British troops against Quechuayo. Um, he says, I am of course not a Negro philist and as a soldier, I should delight in the war, but as a man, I condemn it. So... Very interesting psychology that these guys. Yeah, have. I wonder about the three uh, people sent to, to, you know, to do the inquiry. I wonder <laughs> if they were basically giving Frere the finger. Yeah, uh, and and also uh, the Boers because they probably didn't like them either. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it, if you see it in terms of like um, the way it looks to Quechuao, that's one thing. But if you understand it as the British wanted this war to take over this area from both the Boers and the Africans. It actually makes more sense. Well, Frere gets his war. In January of 1879, British troops cross to Tugela. They're led by Lord Chelmsford, and he splits his troops into uh, multiple columns. Uh, the, The plan is just to drive the Zulu back until they take up one position and then thrash them and Easy peasy, uh, will we'll be done by tea time. Uh, this is going to lead to a battle at Isandlwana, very famous battle. So the Zulus, who move quickly, if you remember, uh, much quicker than the British, who are, as usual, loaded down with, you know, native bearers and everything they can carry. So a Zulu force of about 20,000 warriors attacked one of the British columns. This column had about 1,800 British colonial and native troops and 400 civilians with them. The Zulus are, of course, mainly equipped with their uh, spears and their cowhide shields, but they also had a number of muskets and even a few uh, older rifles. British and colonial troops were armed with a very modern rifle, the Martini Henry. It's a breech-loading rifle. They also have a couple of uh, seven-pounder field guns and even a rocket battery. I'm surprised that they had that there, but apparently they did. Uh, Lord Chelmsford, and and in fact, every British officer, seriously underestimated the Zulus. Uh, They they seem to have shared Frere's attitude that they were, you know, fighting savages armed with, with sticks. So when the Zulus found the British advancing, they attacked them immediately. And they used, you know, Shaka's traditional uh, horns approach. So when the central group, the chest, advanced, uh, British rifle fire caused quite a few uh, casualties to the, to the Zulu center. And then when the horns came in, uh, artillery fire forced one of the horns to take cover. But the other horn outflanked the British, overran the rocket battery, and and took the column from the rear. Of the 1,800 British troops and African auxiliaries, uh, over 1,300 were killed, most of them Europeans. Only five British officers survived. There was a native contingent from Natal. They lost 400 men. And there were some African auxiliaries, the Amachunu, and they lost 240 of 249 men. 
there's no uh, casualty count for the Zulu. The Zulus didn't count, and the British abandoned the field, so they weren't around to make estimates. Best guess, a thousand, maybe between a thousand and two thousand. But not only did they defeat the British force, but they captured a thousand Martini Henry rifles, the two uh, artillery pieces, four hundred thousand rounds of ammunition, uh, three flags. And most of the draft animals pulling wagons, carrying all of you know the British possessions, about 2,000 draft animals and 130 wagons, uh, plus the provisions. So the Zulu took most of that or, or left some of it on the field, and they took the two cannon to Ulundi as trophies. There's a couple of uh, speeches, <laughs> I mean, short speeches that Pakenham quotes from Quechuaio. One is... He had mustered, so for this battle, he had mustered 30,000 men at the capital in Ulundi and addressed them with these words. Uh, this is Pakenham quoting Quechuaio. I am sending you out against the whites who have invaded Zululand and driven away our cattle. You are to go against the column at Rourke's Drift and drive it back into Natal. You will attack by daylight as there are enough of you to eat it up, and you will march slowly so as not to tire yourselves. So that was their... Um, simple plan um Ketrayo also there's a there's a little spiel that he gave um to a missionary about shepstone two years before this war he said i love the english i am not mpande's son i am the child of queen victoria but i am also a king in my own country and must be treated as such uh this what do they call him the father of whiteness some some steo must speak gently to me i shall not hear dictation i shall perish first um so uh, a little bit more about the battle. Uh, I think I have just um, just that. Just, uh, I think that's actually, I think I, I just wanted to read you those speeches. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, another funny thing about um, Hicks Beach uh, and what he said about how he couldn't control Frere. He said, I cannot really control him without a telegraph. I don't know that I could control him with one. I feel yeah. it is as likely as not that he is at war with the Zulus at the present moment. And if his forces should prove inadequate, the Transvaal Boers should take the opportunity to, or the Transvaal Boers should take the opportunity to rise. He will be in great difficulty and we shall be blamed for not supporting him. So this is kind of like your man on the spot thing, Dave, yep. where yep. this guy... Uh, gets them into trouble that then they have to um... contrary to instructions which he knows are coming and ignores <laughs> which i guess a lot of uh a lot of these um imperialists did during this scramble in particular maybe that's a scramble <sighs> dynamic but the other thing is um you know the the kind of arrogance that led to this loss by the british at Isandalwana is um again like linked to their overall attitude at this time like it's uh it's that kind of racial arrogance um magubane cites some interesting quotes from from the economist actually uh, about the way that people post india mutiny uh post 1857 um british officers that were from india that would go to africa um it's it says uh they're reckless and arrogant, um, but that's the way to fight. So one of these guys, Napier, um, in, in Abyssinia, right. the economist was commenting on the Napier expedition in Abyssinia in 1868, and it says, 
Uh, the Economist says India yields soldiers and administrators different than those trained at home. The Anglo Indians have excessive self confidence. They show a readiness to attack anything, go anywhere, subjugate any people. And it's dangerous, but it's a most useful complement or corrective of the more depressed spirit usually prevailing in this country. So when people in England hear about African horrors, drought, famine, and flies with a special animosity to castle to cattle, the Anglo-Indians reading the same statement only enjoyed the expedition the more. Um, the cool contempt of anybody with a dark skin is decidedly an evil, and yet when a fortress of the, in the clouds has to be stormed, it is a good thing. The military habit of thought prevalent in India is often an embarrassment, except in times of war. And then the last quote I think here uh, is really telling is, Above all, it is most advantageous for England to have in her service men with long experiences in the management of dark races, able without an effort to control them without permitting the slightest oppression. So, uh, <laughs> oh, geez. yeah. So th if you think of, you know, people having taking this attitude to uh, to a big battle, uh, you can imagine every once in a while. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't have a degree program at university. Well, I think that's the Oxford Rhodes <laughs> scholarship, yes. which we're going to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> talk about. Uh, Isan Luana led to a, a huge debate. In, oh, wait. In... Sorry, Dave. Let me just say one more thing. This was the thing I was trying to find before. Okay. Um, there was a Boer veteran with Chelmsford, J.J. Uis. He said, remember the fate of the Vore trekkers killed by the Zulus. Trek into Zululand with two loggers. That's a wagon, I guess, yeah, close that, to each other. Right. Place your spies far out and form your wagons into a wagon logger. Chelmsford smiled. That was 40 years ago. The British had the most modern army in the world. So just that. Well, that, that's actually part of the debate. The, yeah. the, the question is, how on earth did we <laughs> lose? Yeah. Right? So there's an inquiry. What happened? Because this is theoretically impossible. Impossible, yeah. Yeah. So Chelmsford got some blame. And as your Boer volunteer suggested, he's blamed for not fortifying his camp because it would have taken too long. He also didn't realize that the main Zulu army was so close. So he didn't have enough scouts out. Uh, yeah, he basically underestimated his enemy and, and paid for it. And then there was the, the Smith-Dorian case. So this is a, a surviving officer named Smith-Dorian. And he's the one who reported that the British had difficulty unpacking their ammunition boxes. So apparently the, the bullets for the Martini Henry were packed in these boxes that had lids that were screwed down. And they had to be, you know, opened with screwdrivers. So... The screws were rusty, difficult to remove. There were too few screwdrivers. And standing orders insisted that until a box was empty, you weren't supposed to open any other boxes. So the quartermasters were reluctant to distribute ammunition to units other than their own. So the British were firing 10 to 12 rounds a minute, uh, quickly ran out of bullets, and the lack of ammunition caused a, a lull in the defense. And this argument, you know, la, 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 and so on. So it passed into legend and everybody's thinking, oh, it's, it was the ammunition boxes, you know, the, the lack of screwdrivers. <laughs> Whereas That's we have funny, numerous yeah. first-hand accounts that said there was no problem with the ammunition supply. 
And Smith Dorian himself, in a letter to his father, said the exact opposite of what he said in public. So uh, it, it, it basically, uh, the, the debate, the bait goes on. Donald Morris in uh, The Washing of the Spears, he says that the men were fighting too far from the camp and uh, ran out of ammunition. And it started with Durnford's men on the right flank. And, and this is your Durnford who uh, was on the commission the of inquiry. Yeah. yeah. So they're on the right flank. They'd been in action longer and it slowed down the rate of fire against the Zulus. So the ammunition was too far from the men that needed it. Uh, but basically that's highly doubtful. There's a different view uh, battlefield evidence and a writer named Ian Knight concluded that the British were defending too large a perimeter. But it's all going to boil down to the official British investigation uh, blaming Chelmsford. He, he was with another column at the time, but it's his fault that they were, you know, caught by surprise. There was a minor incident uh, connected to this battle. Towards the end, about 4,000 Zulu warriors uh, from the reserve I guess they wanted something to do. Uh, they, they had cut off the retreat of the survivors of Isan Luana, and they crossed uh, the Buffalo River and found the fortified mission station at Rourke's Drift. So this is a very small station defended by 140 British soldiers, and they attacked it. And they attacked it unsuccessfully. So the, the British inflicted considerable casualties and repelled the attack. So the British can now make a movie about it to, uh, you know, restore their prestige after, <laughs> you know, yeah. the humiliating defeat at Isan Luana. It, it was a major blow to British prestige. Now the policymakers in London, Frere has put them in a position where they have to continue the war. You know, they didn't want a war. He forced one on them. But now they have to, you know, support the war in order to reverse the verdict. Oh, and of course, there was an election looming. So no government likes to look soft. So the British army in South Africa is going to be heavily reinforced and they're going to invade Zuland again. And they're going to send out your favorite. Garnet, Garnet Wolseley. <laughs> there he is. There you go. But did he do this before the Gordon thing or after? Uh, this is before, before, right? Before, yeah. 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 So the, the further adventures of Sir Garnet Wolseley. So he's going to take command. He's going to relieve Chelmsford and Bartle Frere. He's going to be sent home for a stern lecture. Uh, Chelmsford, though, knows that Isan Luana was his fault. He knows he's going to go home to criticism and possible censure. So he doesn't want to wait for Wolseley to arrive. <laughs> he wants to do the invasion on his own and, you know, restore his own personal prestige. So he's in a hurry. He's also ignoring peace offers from Keshweo. I mean, Keshweo could have invaded Natal. It was wide open to him. But he didn't. So Casuelo's being quite reasonable here. He's saying, all right, uh, let's, let's talk. If you guys are changing, getting rid of Frere, maybe there's you know a way we can settle this. Uh, unfortunately, not. Uh, Chelmsford has 25,000 men. 
24 pieces of artillery and a battery of Gatling guns. These are machine guns, the very first in the British Army. Is that the one where you kind of hand crank it? Yes. Or? Yeah. Yeah, that's the one. So Wolseley sent a cable to Chelmsford, ordering him not to undertake any serious action, which Chelmsford ignored. Actually, he ignored two telegrams from Wolseley because he has no intention of handing over command. So he's going to go and repair his reputation. Wolseley was actually riding to join the army when Chelmsford went ahead and attacked Ulundi. He also had to ignore several more attempts by Quechueo to find out what peace terms would be acceptable. But Quechueo knew his warriors aren't going to surrender, so that's one thing I can't do. So this led to the Battle of Ulundi. This is July of 1879, about 12 to 15,000 uh, Zulus, so they're outnumbered and pretty seriously outgunned. The British opened fire at 2,000 yards, and the Zulus advanced like right into the massed rifle fire, uh, nonstop fire from the Gatling guns and the artillery firing uh, canister at point blank range. Oh, so this is like before Omdurman, but yeah, again, similar. Very, very similar end result. Game. None, it's a very similar them... end game to Sudan, actually, when you look at it. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, none of the Zulus got within 30 yards of the British. Uh, the British had 10 killed and 87 wounded. Uh, the Zulus, 500 dead, 1,000 more wounded. Um, yeah, Magubane summarizes it as, suffice it to say here that even though the British forces were humiliated at Isandalwana and the unfamiliar Zulu name became a household word in England, in the end, the Zulu guys and Zulu bravery proved no match for the rifles and cannon. Together with the final victory over the Hosa kingdoms, British imperialism had finally achieved the military conquest of the two African peoples that stood in the way of achieving white domination of South Africa and its rich mineral resources. By 1906, the British had gained the upper hand, and from now on, it was possible for them to disregard African interests by simply treating them as conquered subjects. Keshweo himself was captured on the 28th of August. He was exiled to London, where he stayed for three years. Uh, Wolseley took over and brought about the first partition. So in order to break the Zulu power, Zululand was divided into 13 districts, each with a pro-British chief installed. Um. Uh, they did a second partition of Zululand in 1883, and Quechueo was restored to the throne of a, a much reduced kingdom. Uh, Frere and Chelmsford were recalled. Uh, Prime Minister Gladstone refused to meet with Chelmsford. He was so annoyed. <laughs> yeah, but, Gladstone's the, uh, what do you call it, anti-imperialist as, as far as it goes, right? Yeah pretty yeah. consistently like even from opium war days and he's extremely old at this time i guess well, he's in the middle of his career believe it or not oh he okay. was he was very he was around for a long time i'm yeah. i'm well into his biography right now and it's pretty long <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty long but yeah was he, he was he so he wasn't an opponent of the first opium war he was an opponent of the second opium war uh 
1840. Uh, 1840s, yeah. Yeah. Oh, 18. Oh, oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. And that's despite being a conservative. Right. He was uh, uh, with uh, uh, Sir Robert Peel. He goes back that far. <laughs> and he's a conservative who eventually uh, became a liberal, started the Liberal Party. So his attitudes <laughs> changed dramatically. Oh, no, he's a fascinating character. Um, yeah, but Queen Victoria forced him to meet Chelmsford. <laughs> so Chelmsford was, you know, given the uh, sort of exoneration, you know, having won at Lundi, he was forgiven in the upper classes for yeah. Isan Luana. There's a, a minor note, celebrity sighting, uh, a fellow named Napoleon Prince Imperial, also known hmm. as Louis Napoleon. This is the only child of Napoleon III. Okay, wait. So, first time Mark said the first time is tragedy, the second time is farce. But if you're talking about the child of Napoleon the Third, this is something after farce. Yeah, I mean it. Yeah. It is. It is after the overthrow right. of Napoleon the Third in 1870. So after that, uh, the family moved to England, and Napoleon the Third died in 1873. So his son, Napoleon, or Louis Napoleon, was uh, proclaimed by the Bonapartist faction as, you know, the rightful heir to the throne. Some of them even called him Napoleon IV. <laughs> okay, whatever. In England, he, he trained as a soldier, you know, following... The in, family uh, tradition. Yeah, the family course. tradition. Although England, I mean, <laughs> you would think well, the family tradition... <laughs> You're in exile. So he trained as a soldier and he was very keen to see action. So he persuaded the British to let him go to the Zulu War. Mm. And uh, in 1879, serving with British forces, he was killed in a skirmish. And so passes Napoleon IV. Yeah. Mind you, it probably wouldn't have been any better if he'd gone to Afghanistan. No, he probably would have got himself killed there too. There, there endeth the first song of the world.